Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss, and my guest today is Michelle Gad, Chief of Conservation at White Oak Conservation, a sprawling 17,000-acre spread located about 30 miles north of Jacksonville, dedicated to the conservation and care of endangered and threatened species. White Oak houses a variety of such species, including rhinoceros, okapis, cheetahs, and more, and will soon be home to about 30 elephants that had performed with the Ringling Brothers Circus until they were retired in 2016. These elephants have been living in a 200-acre facility in Polk City, whereas their new home at White Oak will be a 2,500-acre habitat carefully designed with the day-to-day living and comfort of elephants in mind. So their new digs will be more than 10 times larger, enable them to live far more like elephants like to do, and GAD will help oversee the elephant's transition, which appears to involve a gradual and carefully planned relocation of the animals. Gad's PhD thesis involves studying elephants in Africa from a number of perspectives, and she ran the African Elephant and African Rhino programs for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services. We'll hear more about her background and especially the carefully devised strategy for gradually transferring the former ringling elephants to their new home when I speak with Michelle Gad in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. As a reminder, there will be one of our newfangled ultra-short fun drives lasting one or two days versus a week or more. One week from today, Wednesday, October 14th, and Talking Animals will be raising money that day. Fun drives are the lifeblood of a station like WMNF, constituting more than 70% of our operating budget. So to help us continue our commercial free broadcasting, I'd like to ask your support next Wednesday between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. When you can call in your donation or pledge online at WMNF.org or donate directly from the WMNF app. Perhaps better yet, if you appreciate the interviews and other work we offer each week here on Talking Animals, there's no need to wait until next Wednesday. You can donate now at WMNF.org. Just go to the website, WMNF.org, find Talking Animals on the show schedule, and then click on our tip jar. Just please, please be sure to indicate the donation is being made on behalf of Talking Animals. Thank you very, very much. Meanwhile, later in today's show, I'll speak with Mindy Weisberger, senior writer at Live Science, to discuss Fat Bear Week, the just-completed competition of sorts involving brown bears in Alaska who have been putting on the pounds in serious fashion before their winter hibernation. Fat Bear Week wrapped up yesterday, and we'll ask Weisberger, who wrote a wonderful story about it a few days ago, for her perspective on the contest and the contenders, and then, of course, we will announce this year's Fat Bear Champion. Right now, though, let's talk elephants with Dr. Gad with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. This is Dr. Michelle Gad on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Dr. Gad. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on Talking Animals this morning. Oh, 
My pleasure. Of course, I want to learn all kinds of details about providing the new home for the former ringling elephants, uh, very much including that strategy for moving the elephants over uh, from their present uh, residence in Polk City. But to provide some background and context, really, for that part of the conversation, I'd like to first hear a bit about you and then a bit about white oak conservation. But let's start with you. So I understand that when you were 19, you left for a three-month study abroad program in Africa and ended up staying for about 13 years. Tell me about that. What was the impetus initially? for going there as a teenager? Uh, well, um, not only was I not doing fabulously well at university, <laughs> but I had spent my childhood uh, just transfixed by nature documentaries, and I had probably watched way too much uh, TV for my own good. Mm. And I, I had an idea in my head that there was this wild wilderness out there and that there were schools that could teach you about wildlife management. And I don't know where I got that idea in my head, but uh, luckily I, I found a catalog for a study abroad program that actually had a description similar to that. So I signed up for a semester and uh, that was my junior year. And uh, by the time I got over there, I was 20 and ended up stringing job, well, volunteer position after volunteer position together, uh, scraping by. Didn't didn't really get paid till I got my fish wildlife job in my 30s. Mm. Uh, but I, I really was so fascinated by it and learning some. It's just such a stimulating, challenging place, you know, for a foreigner to be in a new country, learning a new language and seeing just the most beautiful wildlife and scenery and landscapes and interacting with people who could teach me so much um, that I just wanted to find a way to stay. And the best way to stay was on student permits. Yeah. So even though I was not the most gifted academic, um, I found a way to put it together, not not really expecting that it would turn into a career or a job, um, in spite of the fact that I told my parents that it would. Sure. And um, managed in the end to find probably the one job that I was qualified for, and that was at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. Uh, there are five little-known funds, but incredible funds for African elephants, Asian elephants, rhinos, tigers, great apes, and marine turtles. And um, luckily, the, for lucky five of us, we ran those five taxa funds. And together, it's about $12 million, um, so a tenth of a penny per American. And in some cases, they are the biggest funds for those species. So really important conservation funding. All right. Well, maybe we'll come back to that in a sec, but uh, I'm just curious just to back up a little bit in your story. Where were you going to school, if not doing particularly well by your description, and or where were you living at the time where you made this the plan to get over to Africa and sort of live out some of the stuff you'd seen in those uh, wildlife documentaries? Uh, so I went to a school known for its science and engineering strengths, which apparently did not match my own or exceeded my own. And that was Rice University in mm. Texas. Okay. So um, not only was Houston not my natural habitat, but the mentality of Texas, you can imagine, was not that encouraging. And I just found that the curriculum was a lot, was entirely indoor biology. And <clears throat> at that time, I was thinking I was a pre-med. Um, so it was suitable for that, but I just wasn't thriving and I had this idea uh, that, that there was something bigger. I didn't, let's like I said, I didn't know it was a career. But yeah. luckily, um, rice is super cheap. 
And so with the savings of having gotten into Rice and going to school there, it was enough money to pay for a semester abroad. So that's how I found it. That's great. And so when you did get over to Africa on the semester abroad thing that lasted all those extra years, did you, I guess, just immediately fall in love with the place? I mean, did it kind of not only square up with what you had imagined from watching all those documentaries, but did it somehow exceed your expectations? And if so, how? Yeah, it's um, we. There's a, a funny coincidence of many Coloradans in, particularly Kenya and Savannah, Africa, um, to the point that my professor in grad school wanted to name our laboratory CSIC, the Colorado Ecologist Duchess in California. So mm. we all were working in, in Kenya at that time. It's, it's something about the, the big, wide, open landscapes and um, big vistas, and you can see animals before they come at you. Is is really. To me, it's, it's my environment of choice, um, and, and I find myself really claustrophobic in high rainfall forest areas. Mm. Um, but I, I have to also say that during college, I did try to find more local solutions to uh, wanting to do something more. So I you know, did what I could on campus, founding an environmental club, and we did a, a funny activity called Trash for a Week, where we had to carry all the trash that we generated with us everywhere for seven days. And actually, that was it was quite successful, really eye-opening about how much waste we were producing. Yeah. And then I also volunteered at the Houston Zoo as a volunteer zookeeper on Fridays. And um, that was also an amazing experience where I, I learned, um, you know, I'd gone in there, not a fan of, of captive environments, and came to learn that those zookeepers are giving heart and soul to those animals every day. Um, so I, I really learned a lot from, it was actually an all-women team in the primate house that, that trained me up and, and showed me the way and really made me realize this, that that is not where I wanted to be, but that um, that I wanted to see these animals in the wild. And so mm-hmm. I, I, I took the leap from there. Yeah. And so then, if I'm not mistaken, at some point while you're over there, both your master's degree and Ph.D. involved uh, studying and field work with elephants that were over there. Yes. Um, my master's, uh, I was very fortunate to have won an essay contest by Rotary International, the business uh, fraternity. They amazingly generous people. And it was a contest to... Um, about why you could study your subjects better overseas than, than you could in your home place. And clearly elephants and elephant management and wildlife um, in South Africa at, at that time, which was the year that apartheid was ending, 1994, um, you know, I always say I cheated on that essay because anyone who wrote it would have won um, to go to South Africa at that time, watch that transition and uh, get to learn about the wildlife management that was going on there. So for my master's, um, I got to study with a guy who literally coined the term mega herbivores, which are really large herbivores. They have slightly different life histories and survival tendencies than smaller herbivores. And he uh, set me out towards the Kruger Park, told me to find some elephant study if that's what I was determined to do. And I ended up studying two wild-ish herds and two hand-raised orphans whose uh, they were orphans from Culling in Kruger National Park, so had gone through a horrific experience watching their families killed early on, and then they were purchased by a hotel uh, to accompany tourists on walks and things. Mm. So I had wild herds that, that I was afraid of and that I would keep some distance from, but I was trying to track them, and then I had these two hand-raised elephants that, that 
constantly were following us or getting hold of our binoculars or our pens and our notebooks and wreaking havoc on the day's plan. Um, but I was looking at feeding behavior and this question of can there be a mixed species land use? Um, you know, people have tended to remove wildlife and replace it with livestock or domestic species or agriculture. And there's some evidence from Southern Africa, in fact, a, a large body of evidence that it's possible to run a mixed species system, and that's going to maximize your production. So wild ungulates, wild herbivores, as well as cattle or goats or sheep, although goats are probably a bit more destructive. But um, I really wanted to look at this question of, of how do elephants and cattle compete and or how are they complementary? Hmm. Okay. And then again, uh, I think this work and, and your PhD were obviously both with uh, African elephants, whereas the thing we'll get into in a few minutes talking about is, of course, the ringling elephants or Asian elephants. So, But it sounds like you're an elephant person first, and regardless of whether they're African or Asian, uh, that's what you've studied, that's what your expertise is, and it sounds like that's kind of what your passion has been for many years. Yes. Um, after my master's, uh, for my PhD, I, I thought I said, you know, I thought I was making some great breakthrough on elephant feeding dynamics, which I obviously wasn't. Um, it's very difficult to know when they're going to switch foods. They switch from grazing grass to browsing on trees, and, and therefore their environmental impact is hard to predict because they're so flexible and so adaptable that they, they, they do have a habit of eating themselves out of house and home, while other species that are restricted to one food just crash when that food crashes. Mm. Um, but I got to Kenya hoping to pursue this further for my PhD and, and actually found a really tragic situation there that um, 13 people had been killed by elephants in that district in Kenya in my first year of my PhD. And so I rapidly realized that studying these theoretical questions of feeding ecology were not as important as finding out what is the tension and how can that tension be offset or mitigated. So I added a social dimension interviewing local people about what is the purpose of elephants, what is the role of elephants, and what is the burden of living with elephants, and trying to get a handle on what that break point is, like how much can local people tolerate in terms of inconvenience or danger from elephants and still be willing to do so. And I, I actually found some amazing traditional values that were still present there, um, as well as then I added Botswana to my study site and found um, looked at the, the aspects of it must pay its way so that if there was a financial benefit, how did that work out in terms of people's attitude and tolerance? Okay, got it. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Michelle Gad, Chief of Conservation at White Oak Conservation and an elephant expert about plans to relocate the former Ringling Brothers elephants to a 2,500 or thereabouts acre spread at the White Oak facility about 30 miles north of Jacksonville. If you'd like to ask Michelle a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-9663, email dj at wmnf.org, or text 813-433-0885. So, okay, so we've kind of covered the academic studies, and then you touched on, actually earlier, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, stint. So, I guess about a year or so ago, you accepted the position at White Oak. So, just in sort of a quick overview, what is White Oak Conservation? Uh, yes, let's let's move away from me and to something more exciting, which is this rehoming of the Asian elephant. Um, White Oak Conservation is a uh, large open space in forest in northeastern Florida, nearest the town of Yulee. And uh, it was purchased by the Walter family, business people from Chicago, um, in a few years back. 
Um, it had originally been founded in the 80s by a family that had made their business in forestry. And the son, Howard Gilman, was interested in rare species and had brought several there from other captive situations in the U.S. and created much larger, more naturalistic outdoor spaces for them. Um, he he died and with with no heirs and unfortunately the White Oaks had come into a period of financial hardship when the Walters were approached about buying it and luckily they they purchased in they're very generous people incredibly enthusiastic about making a difference with the money they have earned and they managed to expand the overall acreage of the of White Oak itself, buying up some key pieces that were available outside and in little niches uh, to make the combined total of 17,000 acres now. And on that property, there are, um, of course, all the native indigenous North Florida species, as well as now with these Asian elephants, it will be 19 endangered or critically endangered species under human care, but in these large naturalistic habitats. Uh, being allowed to do their natural thing and breed in what is the best, m most close approximation we can provide of a wild area. Okay, so this brings me to a couple of key questions before we get more specifically into the uh, elephants and what's going to happen with them. So the name of the place is White Oak Conservation. Your job title, as I understand it, is Chief of Conservation. So here's the thing for me. Conservation is a word that's often tossed around quite loosely, especially at zoos and other settings with captive animals, where the view of many is that conservation is often kind of... Um, well, kind of amounts to baloney, really, that it's just sort of a term that covers breeding animals, selling or trading them to other facilities. So uh, as chief of conservation at White Oak, maybe you could describe what conservation means there. You've already mentioned that at least some of those animals are breeding. So are they then being sold or traded or otherwise distributed to zoos or other facilities, including, say, private zoos or facilities? What happens after that breeding that you mentioned takes place? Um well, let me let me uh, make one clarification. So I'm actually the chief of conservation for the Walter family. Okay. And so that's an umbrella that includes White Oak and other philanthropic and investment. Okay. Um, so it, my job is to integrate what's happening at White Oak Conservation with what's happening in wild habitats, indigenous habitats overseas and within North America. So it's a greater umbrella of support to conservation for rare species and wild places. Okay, so does that mean that then when you're talking about integrating the white oak animals into other, is in this case, is the breeding then actually then for those animals to then be released back into the wild? So with the assurance, what, what are referred to as assurance colonies or assurance populations, which is, as you referred to, this often repeated benefit of, of captive or zoo environments in the U.S. is to have a backup or safety population in the U.S. should the wild population go extinct. Um, unfortunately, too often that is used as the justification to have animals in human care or in captivity. And unfortunately, there haven't historically been that many examples where a captive situation actually bolsters a wild population. So we are aiming to change that. Our goal with many of these species is not just to have a assurance colony on American soil, but where possible and where appropriate and where needed to provide breeding stock or individuals for reintroduction to the wild. So, and there, that does not apply for every species. So unfortunately, it is 
reintroducing something is a lot harder than taking it out of where it belongs. Right. Um, But we have managed in the past to send back bongo antelope, roan antelope, and black rhinos to Africa. We also are working with domestic agencies because we are a landowner in northeastern Florida. Uh, We have been collaborating with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Florida Wildlife Conservation Commission on... uh, rehabbing injured Florida panthers, a really tragic situation resulting from all the roads and roadkill and mm-hmm. injuries that result for Florida panthers. Uh, Flor- uh, much less charismatic, little-known species, the Florida grasshopper sparrow and Mississippi sandhill crane. So those are all examples of where white oak bred, an- bred or raised or rehabilitated animals have been able to go back. So with I, these Asian, sorry, go ahead. Oh no, go, no, I was just going to say. So so far, because we'll get to the elephants in more detail for, for sure in just a moment. But I just want to make sure I understand. So so far, are the animals that have been bred at White Oak have been done so with the express purposes of releasing them into the wild, or are there other purposes for the breeding as well? So we do also recognize the assurance population principle and we collaborate with American Zoos and Aquaria, the AZA, on species survival plans Mm. for many of these endangered and critically endangered taxa. Okay. So our animals are are included in the overall national gene pool, continental gene pool, and we do make them available for trading or breeding with other collections as as is recommended by the scientific fraternity that is experts on that species. Okay, so a bongo or a cheetah or an okapi or whatever that might be bred at White Oak could end up at, let's say, a given zoo as part of that overall program you've just described. Yes, we work on a partnership basis or a loan basis um, so that we are not at a loss for the animals. We can call them back and so on, but we certainly are managing them, allowing them to breed, and even pairing them in accordance with, with what the species survival plans recommend. Okay. But would it, so it sounds like there's a fair amount of breeding that goes on because one of the comments that I've gotten since I mentioned that, that I was going to do this show and this interview with you was that to some of the people that were, had written these comments, that White Oak sounded like it was kind of just a um, slightly glorified or maybe very glorified, but still nonetheless, a breeding facility that may have different aims depending on the animal, but that that's a, a big part of its mission and its purpose. How would you respond to that observation? You know, I think I I can see how it could be interpreted that way. And I Mm -hmm. think that in that period when White Oak was in financial straits, it could have gone either way. It could have been turned into some kind of a for-profit animal production scenario. Um, Luckily, it was purchased by the Walters, who are willing to operate it at a huge financial cost to themselves and whose heart of heart is, is... not only in the welfare of the individual animals, but in the greater conservation picture. So they fully recognize that, you know, this is an anomaly. This is this is the best that we can do for these individuals for now. But let's not lose sight or detract from the bigger picture, which is wildlife conservation in the wild. Okay. Even though I keep promising I'm going to get in the elephants, and I am. I don't want to run out of time after all this. But I just, I just think it was super important to clarify because it sounds like on the sort of continuum of places that save conservation or, or use that term in whatever way that are strictly breeding 
to swap out or sell to zoos or other facilities. That's one part of the spectrum. And then further in another part of that spectrum or continuum would be uh, places that might still be doing that, but are also actually doing what is often pitched as part of conservation efforts, but often does not actually happen, which is returning breeding those animals and returning them to the wild. So that's that does also happen at White Oak in addition to what we've talked about in terms of the connection with zoos and other facilities like those. Do I have that right? Yes, that's okay. right. Okay. So, all right, because we've got a call or two and some messages, and I, of course, have my own questions, so I just want to make sure we don't run out of time. Let's take one of the callers right now. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Hi. Michelle Gann. Hi, go ahead, please. That's you. Oh, yeah. My name is Alice, and I have a question. I've gone to Tanzania, and I watch a lot of shows in National Geographic. Um, they said one of the reasons that the elephants are getting so aggressive is they, uh, poachers or hunters are trying to take the ivory, and they're taking the oldest male, the bull, and that's causing them to be, they keep them, the young male elephants in check with hormones. Uh, they keep them in check, and that's being taken away. Plus, now they're going after people. Um, visiting, you know, um, visiting, you know, in the Serengeti, um, they're going after humans more. Can something be done more about the, this poaching for that? I think that's what, where we need to look, what we need to look at. Well, feel free to answer, Michelle. I mean, that's uh, certainly an important question, probably not the focus for today's conversation. I just want to make sure we have enough time left to, to focus on what today's conversation is about. But if you want to quickly respond to that, Michelle, please feel free. Sure. Um, what the, the caller is, is asking about is this situation where um, poaching pressure and possibly trophy hunting pressure on wild elephants is not only removing a portion of the population, perhaps a very a, a disproportionately valuable portion, and that's the older adult males who know their way around, they know how to behave like a good elephant, they keep things in order, um, but it's also re resulting in what some people refer to as post-traumatic stress disorder for the survivors. So certainly we agree, both um, myself and the Walter family and what White Oak works towards, is we need to make wild places safe. Um, we would rather not have to be keeping them on American soil. And we are working towards that in Africa at the moment. So certainly preventing poaching, combating wildlife trafficking and the illegal trade of ivory, and trying to mitigate this conflict with local people. Um, with the Asian elephants that we're focused on today, um, the, the males are the ones that have tusks and the females are tuskless. Whereas in African elephants, both male and female have tusks. And the effect of poaching illegal hunting for ivory has therefore just decimated the entire population because poachers are indiscriminate. Any any animal that has ivory is, is fair game. In Asia, there's been there's much more of a skew because it is older bull elephants, and therefore Asian elephants right now are more impacted by habitat loss, some poaching for ivory, and unfortunately this new emerging skin trade in Asian markets, uh, and, and finally conflict with local people over land. Uh, so that is why for these Asian elephants, there's not a suitable place to put them back in the wild. And, and certainly that would have been uh, a priority. But for these animals, that would not have been either humane, um, nor would, would they make good candidates for reintroduction. 
All right, caller, thank you for your question. This is Talking Animals on WNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is elephant expert Michelle Gadd, who will be overseeing the relocation of former Ringling Brothers elephants to a 2,500-acre spread at the White Oak Conservation Facility north of Jacksonville. We invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org or texting 813-433-0885. So, Michelle, how was the decision made to bring the former Ringling Brothers elephants from the fairly small place uh, they've been living in, in Polk City to White Oak Conservation? Uh, a few years ago, in 2016, when the circus industry was under pressure to not use elephants in performances anymore for humane reasons, um, the owners of White Oak were approached by a representative of Ringling Brothers, Barnum & Bailey, about uh, whether they'd be interested in rehoming these elephants. So the Walter family was willing to take on that expense and uh, the reason that a new sanctuary or new refuge or new area is needed for them is because the existing well-reputed elephant sanctuaries that do exist in the U.S. could not take on that many more additional elephants together. Sure. And we recognize that these elephants, 34 of them in total, have traveled the roads of the United States together. Uh, many of them have been in human care their entire lives. Um, many of them, in fact, 19 were born in the U.S., um, so they are familiar with one another. They, they had not been kept in a large open habitat together, but they can certainly see and smell and vocalize to one another. So we didn't want to break up that social bond, and in fact, we wanted to encourage it and to let them loose in an area where they can explore those social relationships and sort themselves out as they choose. Um, mothers staying with their daughters and their granddaughters, the bulls wandering off to wherever it is they wish to go, coming together when they wish to. And, and so we really wanted to give them that opportunity. So we have broken ground on this 2,500-acre habitat, and it is going to include wetlands, grasslands, and even forests. Um, it will have 11 water holes in it, and some of them will be big enough for the animals to swim and submerge if they want, and others will be mud wallows for them to play in. And they will also have three barns that include state-of-the-art veterinary equipment built to the appropriate elephantine size. And those will be available to the animals um, to come and go and when they need veterinary care. So we expect these animals, you know, some of them are going to be shy and want to stay home or near what they know, which is people. And we think others of them are just really going to seize this opportunity to go out into the woods and have a day of bird watching or a day of playing in the mud. And we're designed, we've designed the area in a way that they are free to do that. They may choose each and every day whether they're going to have a day off, a day in the woods, or a day with family, or, or come back and stand near where the other species and, and the human activity is at White Oak. And so, sorry to kind of circle back to be a semi-one note here, but will any of these 34 elephants be involved in breeding once they get to White Oak? Yes, we are letting these elephants behave like elephants, and that is, includes letting them breed. So then the offspring of, of that breeding then, again, as we, I guess, kind of covered with other animals, would presumably then be available to uh, zoos and other facilities that have elephants, Asian elephants. So we have, we have a lot of room for expansion at mm -hmm. White Oak Conservation, so we don't anticipate running out of room. Um, but for the first time, these ringling ex-ringling elephants will be included in the north american elephant asian elephant 
species survival plan. So that's 34 new genetic combinations that can be added to the U.S. population, which is only in the 200 to 300 range. So that's a significant new diversification of the genes. And we will make these individuals available for that purpose of genetic diversity. But for the first few years, really what we want to do is let them into this area, let them explore it and be stimulated by wildlife and other species and plants and finding their own food and really just let them chill out and settle in after a long life working. Mm-hmm. You know, we really feel like they deserve this time to just relax, just be elephants, and, and we won't put any pressures on them for now. I see. Okay. Let me get another caller involved, and then I get some of the, read some of the emails as well that have come in or texts. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Michelle Gad. Hi. Um, I was just curious uh, what kind of condition the elephants are in after being in Polk uh, facility. Um, I heard that they were having blood taken from them constantly, maybe some tested on, something like that I heard in the beginning when they were first taken. Uh can you let us know what's going on with these elephants right now? And actually, if you don't, well, hold on before, sorry, Michelle, before you answer, I might piggyback on that with one of our emailers. One of the first uh, emails that came in, in fact, uh, says, I know Ringley was helping to conduct animal experiments for childhood diabetes by drawing blood from these elephants. And who knows what else? So it goes on to say, please tell me these experiments will not be continued in their new home and the use of bull hooks will not be used. Thanks. So you can respond to both the caller's question and, and then the sort of related um, question from our emailer. Okay. Uh so I cannot speak to uh, how the elephants were managed or treated prior to our acquisition and our taking over management and training of them. Um, I am aware, tangentially, I have read up on some of the disease and, and blood taking issues. Uh, on that issue, I can say that we are adhering to the national requirements for monitoring for diseases that do affect Asian elephants in the United States. That includes tuberculosis and endotheliotropic herpes virus. And those do require regular monitoring and resultant treatment. Both of those we do provide, both at Polk City, and we will continue to provide at White Oak. So we will continue to do the standard monitoring and treatment of elephants for diseases that are affecting their well-being. We will not be doing any voluntary uh, experiments. We will not be doing any additional blood draws or any additional testing for research purposes. And just to clarify, my understanding is these these elephants were never infected or inoculated or tested with foreign substances. My understanding is that blood that was taken for their own health monitoring purposes was then donated for the purposes of these other research that was conducted in the laboratory. Nonetheless, it's a new time. It's a new era for these elephants. It's a, a new chance at life. So uh, that time is over. In terms of their their conditions and how we found them or how they are doing, um, they are currently overnighting in the great outdoors uh, for the biggest group of females that we expect to be able to get along and want to hang out together. That's going to be a total of 16 of the individuals that seem to be socially bonded and compatible and already 13 of those 16 have been introduced to one another and are no longer separated by any sort of uh, corral or boundary or anything they are out and about in their outdoor area already at Polk City and when we move them to White Oak Conservation we will totally continue that Uh, they can sort that they have sorted themselves out and that is our goal is to 
figure out those social hierarchies and those social connections and compatibilities while they are at Polk City and then let them behave more um, as elephants would when they get to the, the open areas at White Oak. In terms of their uh, training or management, as I mentioned, unfortunately, elephants in human care and in the wild do have certain afflictions that will require veterinary care. These elephants, having been in human care most of their lives, are actually include quite a lot of old and elderly individuals. We have several that are over 50. And one of these elephants, Mysore, is the oldest elephant in the United States. She'll be 75 years old next January. So they do require some, um, you know, love and tender care and specific interventions to make sure their feet are okay, their joints aren't hurting, etc. In the past, that was done uh, traditionally in performance situations. People use what's known as free contact that the caller referred to. We do not do that now, and that will not be happening at White Oak Conservation. So we are transitioning them to protected contact where our employees are behind a barrier and the elephants are out and about and can do what they want. And the elephants are called over for examinations or feeding or whatever needs to be done um, and provided with a positive reward. So that is how we are working them now, and that is how they will be handled. Not handled, that is how they will be allowed to live up at White Oak Conservation when they get there. There will be no more negative reinforcement, no um, no punishment, no... Um, no bull hooks, it no. sounds like, if it's protected contact. That's correct. There will yeah. be no... Okay. And there will be no performances that they 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 are no they are not trained to do any non-natural behaviors um we do have expect you know we have followed the aza code or we are complying with aza that this is the plan except in the case where it's for the animal's own welfare if we would have to intervene and and isolate one or something that is the the only case in which we would restrain them Okay. All right. Thank you, caller, for your question. And I'm just going to sort of run through a few of the emails and texts and maybe try to oh, squeeze actually, in one. Can I, can I, sorry, there was one element of those. Okay. We are like, really running short on time, but sure, go ahead with something super okay. important. In yeah. condition, I would just say I have been amazed at how outgoing and um, welcoming towards people they are. Like when I walk by, they come right over. So it, it really has been encouraging to see how quickly um, they have settled in and how eager they are. Okay. I'm just going to ask two or three quick questions. If I just get one or two word answers, that would be great, just so we make sure we squeeze as much info in, because we only have a minute or two left probably at this point. So back to your thing about the ages of these elephants. How many are, are actually of breeding age, one of our emailers says, uh, asks? Uh, we expect 13 to 16 of them to be in oh, that age. Is it that 13 that you mentioned that are part of that, that herd, uh, potential herd of 16? That's right. Then yeah. The other ones are older females that tend to group up together, and then the males. Right. Which are Six and at this point, uh, Sorry, eight the, the Feld Entertainment Group, uh, operator of, of Ringling, when it existed at least, has no involvement with the elephants anymore. That These are now kind of under the, the watch and care and supervision of White Oak, even though they haven't relocated to the new facility yet. Do I have that correct? That is correct. We, okay. we are now providing all their management and care. Okay, another question that came up really quick that's a quick answer, quick question is, uh, I don't know if White Oak currently or, or any part of it or where when the elephants are there, will that be open to the public in any way? So White Oak can be visited by reservation. Uh, for the elephants, especially in the face of this current pandemic, we are rethinking our strategy to visitors, but we fully recognize that people want to see these elephants. It's an incredible, magical experience to get to watch an elephant. So we are trying to figure out how to maximize that and yet respect 
human health care and these elephants' freedom of movement. So it may be a lot of virtual things. It may be uh, live cams, but certainly we'll be incorporating an education component so they can continue to be the great ambassadors they have been. Okay, and this is probably our last question because we are now at the end of our time, I'm afraid. But uh, there's a couple of references to sanctuaries. They don't allow breeding at sanctuaries, but I don't think... White Oak considers itself a sanctuary and doesn't call itself a sanctuary. Do I have that correct? You are correct. Yes. Okay. All right. So that's, uh, I wish we had more time, but maybe we'll uh, come back to this. Maybe uh, when you get all the elephants loaded in, we'll maybe do a follow-up conversation. But we've been speaking with Michelle Gad again, from White Oak Conversation and the website to find out more. And I think you can see like a video rendering of what the elephant's space will look like is whiteoakwildlife.org is the website. Michelle, thank you so much for making the time to join us today on Talking Animals. Thank you so much, Duncan. Thank you. In a moment, I'll speak with Cindy Weisberger of Live Science about Fat Bear Week, in which brown bears compete unknowingly, I should hasten to point out, to see who can slap on as much weight as possible before easing into hibernation. We will announce the winner, but first we'll discuss the competition and some heavy favorites. Yes, heavy favorites. Right now, we're going to step into the comedy corner with John Mulaney offering some highly relevant metaphorical political commentary, even though it's a couple of years old. You'll see what I mean in a moment. This is a portion of There's a Horse in the Hospital from John Mulaney in today's comedy corner on Talking Animals. On WMNF. I've never really cared about politics. I've never talked about it much. But then, last November, the strangest thing happened. Now, I don't know if you've been following the news, but I've been keeping my ears open, and it seems like everyone everywhere is super mad about everything all the time. I try to stay a little optimistic, even though I will admit, things are getting pretty sticky. Here's how I try to look at it, and this is just me. This guy being the president, it's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. It's like there's a horse loose in a hospital. I think eventually everything's gonna be okay, but I have no idea what's gonna happen next. And neither do any of you, and neither do your parents, because there's a horse loose in the hospital. It's never happened before. No one knows what the horse is going to do next, least of all the horse. He's never been in a hospital before. He's as confused as you are. There's no experts. They try to find experts on the news. They're like, we're joined now by a man that once saw a bird in the airport. It's like, get out of here with that sh-. We've all seen a bird in the airport. This is a horse loose in a hospital. When a horse is loose in a hospital, you gotta stay updated. So all day long, you walk around, oh, what'd the horse do, what'd the horse do? The updates, they're not always bad. Sometimes they're just odd. Be like, the horse used the elevator. I didn't know he knew how to do that. That was John Mulaney in today's Comedy Corner with a portion of a piece all too timely and relevant, I think, 
Well, there's a horse in the hospital, taken from his album, Kid Gorgeous. Now it's time to speak with Mindy Weisberger, senior writer at Live Science about Fat Bear Week. And if you're not familiar with this event, we'll ask Mindy to describe it, of course. This is Mindy Weisberger on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Wendy. Mindy. Good morning. Sorry. <laughs> I was so worried about your last name, then I got the, the first name, so I'm wrong at the last second. Yikes. Happens oh. all the time. All right. So first, maybe you could uh, actually just give me a brief description of live science for those who might not be familiar with that. Sure. So live science is a uh, is a website for the science nerd in everybody. So uh, we keep you up to date on uh, on the latest science news, on new species discoveries, on uh, on strange animal behavior, on everything that's happening in astrophysics and archaeology and paleontology there's there's a little something there for everybody there sure is and it's really it covers a lot of ground and again for talking animals type folks uh, there's plenty of animal coverage of one kind or another including the coverage of the fat bear week so now flouting journalism's best practices i think we actually will intentionally bury the lead for a moment if that's okay <laughs> meaning okay. identifying the winner of fat bear week though we will yep. of course promise to announce it before we finish our conversation so you wrote a wonderful story in life science about fat bear week so i'd like to ask you to just kind of briefly summarize what fat bear week is where it takes place and who are considered maybe some of the, the year's top contenders yeah, sure. Well, Fat, Fat Bear Week is just it's a magical time of year where uh, where the bears in uh, that live around Brooks River in uh, Katmai National Park and Preserve, which is uh, on a peninsula in southern Alaska, uh, where they start bulking up for the winter hibernation. And uh, Brooks River is, uh, is just teeming with lots of high-calorie salmon. So these bears are basically just sitting around the river. They don't have to go looking around to forage. They can just, you know, kind of plop themselves down and feed out of a nonstop buffet for months. So from about June to October, they basically just stuff their faces with salmon and they get super fat, like really, really round. And so, uh, so Fat Bear Week, uh, which takes place from, uh, from September, uh, September 30th through October 6th, is when people have the opportunity to vote on their favorite fat bear. So, uh, so these bears are photographed in their in their natural habitat as they're uh, uh, and they're they're actually before and after photos that are available. So you can see how much weight they've gained and uh, and there's a bracket. Uh, so you can basically go through uh, day day day. You have an opportunity to vote on uh, on which bear you think is the chunkiest. And uh, at the end, only one fat bear is left standing as the winner. And and really, it's not unlike when people uh, march madness, well, to whatever extent that still exists kind of these days in the <laughs> pandemic. But you get your brackets and it has your bears. You kind of place your bets based on what bear you think is going to really emerge as the uh, champion fat bear. So Right. So you've got seven, seven days and there, and there are uh, plenty of, plenty of chunks to choose from and uh, the bracket is hosted uh, and the contest is hosted by uh, the website explore.org which uh, is also a live nature cam network and they have a live cam of the brooks river bears so actually so so actually you know if you want to watch the weight gain happening in real time you can actually you know you can actually watch the watch this happening uh, on live cam. and as an aside i should mention for anyone who thinks this either sounds like or if they already have read or heard about it and think it might be some kind of sad spectacle or or there's even some sort of weird bear fat shaming involved. When I posted something about this, I got like a sad emoji thing. And I thought, really? Oh, no. But 
<laughs> because maybe you can explain why those in, in Katmai consider this a positive event and sort of evidence, if anything, that nature is functioning as intended when these bears do indeed fatten up. Oh, no, absolutely. This is the best possible thing for these bears to be doing because yeah. they're, they're, facing, they're facing several months of not eating at all. So they're about to enter a period of hibernation where, uh, and, and even even after they, you know, even after they emerge from hibernation to the spring, there's very little food around. So they're looking at months of you know, of next to no food. So so putting on this this extra weight now is actually a natural process. Uh, in fact, in early September, the bears enter a metabolic state called hyperphagia, where the hormone leptin, which is uh, which is the hormone that tells you when you're full, it actually switches off. So that the bears are hungry all the time. And this is just part of the process that is, you know, that, that prepares them and that actually makes it possible for them to survive the long months where there isn't enough food. Right. So, again, it's a good thing. There's nothing bad or embarrassing. We're certainly, uh, all of us here at least, are gigantic bear fans. We're not making fun <laughs> of bears. We're rooting them on, if anything. So, with that in mind... Gigantic bears. Yeah. So, I don't know if we should have a drum roll or not, but the winner is... Mindy? The winner is Bear... Seven forty-seven, and by no, not, not a very not a not a very evocative name. The 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 bear that the, the seven forty-seven won against was uh, bear thirty-two, was also named Chunk, which yeah. you know is a little more fun. But uh, yeah, bear seventy-seven forty-seven um, was uh, was declared the winner of Fat Bear. Right, and I should say by at least the last time I looked, by quite a significant landslide, I guess. Right, in terms of votes. Well, well this no, this uh, well, you know, bear, bear seven forty-seven was a pretty significant. Wait, uh, yeah. they can't. You know, they can't. They can't weigh the bears, uh, but uh, but they uh, they are able to estimate their volume using yeah. uh, this, using a laser system, and so uh, and so bear seven forty seven was estimated to be about fourteen hundred pounds. So wow. substantial. Okay, so a clear champion in all kinds of ways, and we want to say congratulations to Bear 747, of course, and hope that maybe reverse through the camera that uh, he'll get those congrats. So, uh, so Mandy, thank you so much. Well, again, we want to make sure that we say Life Science, to check it out, is just lifescience.com to get all that kind of coverage that she talked about. And again, if you're a science nerd or an animal person or whatever, or any combination thereof, this is the, uh, the site for you. So, Mandy, thank you so much for joining us today on Talking Animals. Thanks so much for having me. You bet. Bye-bye. I'm Duncan Strauss. Listening to Talking Animals. Coming up at 11 on WMNF, it's Rob Lori with Radioactivity, followed at noon by Midpoint with NOLA. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by Scott Elliott in the All Souls edition of It's the Music. We have just about reached the end of today's edition of Talking Animals on WMNF. Tampa, I invite you to return next Wednesday at 10 a.m. when my friend Laura Taylor and I will be raising money on Talking Animals, funds that WMNF truly needs to cover all the costs of bringing you all the station's programming, the engineers, the equipment, the staff salaries, the many other resources that you've come to count on. Hope I can count on you to pledge on behalf of Talking Animals and WNF. Go online at WNF.org and donate, please. Do it today. Heck, why not do it now? That'd be great. You'd feel so good about yourself, and so would I. So, I also invite you to visit TalkingAnimals.net for audio archives of every show we've ever broadcast. All our social media links are there as well. That's TalkingAnimals.net. This is Talking Animals on WNF Tampa. Brandon Clearwater Largo, Wiki Watch and Beyond.